Welcome back to the Understanding Men podcast, which is basically two guys talking about things that men could but don't speak about anywhere near enough. I'm Luke Sutton and I'm with my great friend again, Fraser Franks. And before we get started in today's episode, I want us just to do a little health check on Fraser. Fraser, it's I worked out it's about five weeks since your open heart surgery. How are you feeling, my friend? I'm feeling the best that I've felt by a long way. Amazing. See, so yeah, I'm feeling feeling really good. My chest, my chest is getting a lot better. I'm starting to get used to the old clicky valve that I've now got in there. That's um, yeah, a very unusual sensation, but one I'm getting used to. And just more mentally, physically, yeah, getting a lot better. Getting some more independence now. So next week I'll be able to drive, which will be massive for me. I've been getting buses and taxis and yeah, all that kind of stuff. So that's been difficult. But no, I'm being well looked after and uh, yeah, feeling really good. Thank you. The clicky valve thing, just bring that to life for us. Can you literally hear your heart clicking away? (laughs) Like like even now, if you sort of sit quietly. Yeah, if if you were sat next to me and it was quiet, you'd be able to hear it. Wow. And it's... If I'm talking like this, I've now got to a point where I'm not paying attention to it, but where it's been really difficult and where I've struggled sleeping is when you're in bed and you're laid on your back and that's the only real position because my chest is still fusing together. It's the only real position I can sleep. So when I'm like that, it's literally as if it's jumping out my throat. So it's a very odd sensation and it's caused me some sleepless nights, but I have to look at it and think if it wasn't for that, little piece of carbon fiber then I wouldn't be here for very long so very grateful for it and that's my um my mentality with it amazing good who knew that this podcast would become a a health docu-series on uh, a young man having open heart surgery (laughs) it's good to see you sounding looking so well though Anyway, thank you for joining us again for today's episode. Today's uh, subject is one which is super close for Fraser and I. We're going to talk about addiction. Both Fraser and I have have been very open about our own issues with alcohol and and our own journey in recovering from addiction. And, uh, you know, we were always going to do an episode, I think, on this because it's so close to our, uh, it's such a been such a big part of our lives, but it, I think it's also so relevant to so many people in society and 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 particularly men. And so we're just going to dive into it and be as open and honest as we've always been. And I hope you guys get a lot from it. So we're going to start with me giving a bit of background on my story. So for me, my addiction journey and, and my challenges with alcohol, and I. To give some context, I've I've been sober on Friday for 12 years. I know that doesn't mean much context. You don't know when we're recording this. But anyway, just trust me, it's this Friday. I'll be 12 years sober. And so I've had a long time of sobriety, which has given me a long time to look back on what happened to me, essentially, and, and put some perspective on it and, and, and grab some knowledge and understanding around it. I, I think for me, I went into drinking alcohol like the same same way many young people did. However, I did feel early on for me, it was different to what it was for other people. 
there are in addiction a lot of people talk about crossing a line where it goes from not a problem to a problem but I, for me i don't think that really happened to me for me drinking was always unusual or addictive behavior was always unusual it was always at an extreme i know this isn't necessarily unusual but the first time i drank i was sick you know i was i got absolutely smashed but it was it was always that way for me within my drinking journey and it just fitted perfectly into helping me with life is the best way i can describe it i was very confident on a on a sports field and in competition and obviously my sport was cricket but socially i was was quite a nervous i can still be quite a nervous person as particularly in new settings i i wanted to be extroverted but i i'm not i'm an introverted person you know talking to girls and making friends and things like that so when alcohol arrived in my late teens and then as a young adult it was perfect it just alleviated all of that kind of fear and um doubt i had about myself and in some ways i felt like i had arrived with alcohol it was like i'm here this is me this is how the world's going to tick and i loved it i loved it and when i went into professional sport it was almost like the combination of the two was really perfect for me i was i was highly competitive i loved training i was desperate to do well and i had this other thing alcohol which which gave me escape and release and from that pressure valve of my own head and i didn't feel nervous then when i drank and people liked me for it cuz i was a bit wild and a bit different and it was like it it was perfect it worked i had this sort of this method i kind of always think of it as being where i would train extremely hard and then i would play really hard and then by play hard i'd need to sort of have my i don't know comeuppance and i'd have to train hard again and then i then i'd get the reward of drinking and it would just go round and round and it led to success that was that's the mad thing it, it was it kind of worked and I, i think the thing with addiction is it works until it doesn't work and then when it doesn't work it hits you very hard and so for me that part of my nature that extreme part of my nature which included drinking it was never normal but it worked and then it just over a period of time it just got worse and worse and worse and my drinking I'm I'm talking about here but I'm talking about everything in my life you know all extreme and I'm I've learned that I can be an an addict with everything work you know, coffee chocolate anything that comes away it, it, I can I can go to a level which isn't normal or you know reasonable and eventually you know some key things happened to me in my in the previous episode we talked about my girlfriend dying in a car crash that wasn't the reason that i became i got a problem with alcohol but it definitely accelerated the process for sure because all of that nervousness and uncertainty about myself about the world and how i fitted into it i needed that escape i felt i needed that escape and i needed to get away from myself and get away from life and and alcohol was that best friend for me so progressively things just got worse and worse and then eventually it gets to a place where you know the gap between your next big drinking binge gets shorter and shorter the binges get more extreme and it was just getting worse and worse and worse over time and then it was starting to affect everything else it wasn't my friend it was affecting my first marriage it was affecting my cricket it was ex- affecting my friendships everything that i could do was eating into them 
And it wasn't relieving me of that pressure of life. It was actually creating more pressure. My anxiety, my mental health was was desperately falling apart. And I thought I had this friend in alcohol. So I'd go back to that friend and try and drink my way through it and it'd get worse and it'd get worse. And and then I suddenly realized I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop doing what I was doing. I was, you know, we'd talk about it in recovery from addiction I was powerless and I and I really felt like that there was an inevitability about me fucking up again about me getting in another problem and and that's the 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 best visual I can give you to describe what I'm trying to say is my drop to the bottom in addiction felt like an ever decreasing circle so to start with it was really wide and slow moving it was so wide and slow moving I, I didn't even know it was there and then just over time, that spiral was just getting tighter and faster and faster and faster. And then towards the end, it was rapid. And then I fell to the bottom and it broke me, addiction. It, my life completely fell apart. That, that's the truth. I was desperately pre- trying to pretend to everybody that I had life sorted and I was desperately unhappy. I, I never forget when I and I was taken I went into a rehabilitation facility which I'm I'm very grateful for but I never forget the feeling I I got when I was going in bearing in mind I was unwell physically mentally really unwell but I had this overriding feeling and this phrase kept coming up in my head saying the game's up I can stop pretending the game's up I can stop pretending and what what was I to stop pretending about that everything was okay because it it wasn't okay. And finally, I had broken enough that the shackle of that pretending I was okay had gone. And it was a feeling of relief. It's the weirdest, weirdest thing when your life has completely fallen apart was relief. And that's that's the overriding feeling I had. And that first day in recovery, in sorry, in, in rehab 12 years ago this Friday, was the start of my journey of understanding who I am, what goes through my head, how I react to things. And I've discovered all of what got me to that place, you know, where where my life fell apart. And I realized that my my challenges weren't necessarily with alcohol. And that's going to sound back to front. My challenges were with life, how I operated in life. And the alcohol or whatever the addiction was, was just the symptom. It was just the letting the, the pressure valve go because I had no way of doing it. I'd know my operating in life just built this pressure up and then bang. And so, yeah, I'm a, a full-blown recovering addict. I'm proud of it. I know who I am. The last 12 years have been difficult but beautiful all at the same time. And um, I'm grateful to be where I am today. So anyway, Fraser, I will hand that over to you now. Oh wow, what a what a share that was, mate. Thank you. And um yeah, so you obviously will, will come on to it uh, shortly, but you play a massive part in my own recovery and I'd love to have seen you beyond tw- twelve years is is incredible, but I'd love to have seen you uh in your previous life just to see the differences. <laughs> one yeah. one good thing that I get a glimpse of at the minute, because I obviously can't see that, but I go in and I talk about addiction and alcohol to a lot of cricket teams. And you're getting coaches and different players at certain points in their career. And I obviously feature you heavily in my presentation. Is that they're like, 
I was a teammate of Luke's or I know Luke and it's all different periods of their lives. You get, you know, one of the older players now that might have been a young player coming through or a coach that was your teammate at a certain point. But all of them just, you know, speak about the man that you are. And yeah, I, I got so much and I do every time that you talk, but I get so much, you know, I relate to so much of that. And so much is exactly like mine. And again, in the presentation, I say, I don't think mine was a drink problem. It was a life problem. It was drink was, you know, trying to solve those issues that were actually happening in life. And there's so many similarities, but also quite a few differences as well. And I suppose the first bit I'll start on is, you know, you said that you you drank and you were sick the first time. I think the first time I drank, I wasn't sick, but it definitely... I drank differently to my friends and it created different feelings. I'd grown up in a house with a a dad that drank heavily and I didn't like, you know, what I saw it do. And then, um, you know, various other people in my life. So I'd seen the sort of not very nice side of alcohol very early on. I think a lot of my other friends might have seen the the good side of alcohol, if you like, where their mum and dad might have a couple of couple of beers or glasses of wine and they might be a bit silly or a bit funny and then call it a night that kind of thing where I saw a slightly different side so I vowed and plus I wanted to be a professional footballer I vowed I'd never ever touch alcohol and I was quite a late drinker I think I was 17 when I had my first drink so from the age of 16 onwards I'm going to parties I'm going out and I'm always the sober one always felt very self-conscious always felt boring always got told I was boring never really spoke to any girls. I went to an all boys school so and I was in Chelsea's academy at the time so I really by the age of like 16 17 socially just so awkward so shy but I could see that my friends could go out um, and they were all aspiring footballers as well. I could see that they could go to these parties and talk to girls and have a good time. Come in Monday morning they could train well. A lot of them seemed like they were better players than me. I always felt like I was more dedicated and driven, but I could see these going out and I was like, they're having such a good time and I feel really awkward stood here. And I remember it went on and on and I had my first drink and that night in front of all the boys, I remember them giving me a big cheer and wanting me to have a drink. I got with a girl and all that kind of stuff in front of the boys and it gave me that confidence I didn't have. And alcohol at that point was a friend. It was like, right, you don't have to be shy. You you can go and talk to these girls. You can go and do this. Here's a bit of confidence. So I took this drink. I could go and dance. I could go and do whatever I wanted to. And at first it didn't come with any real consequences because I drank Smyrnaf Ices and WKDs and I didn't go overboard. So the next morning I didn't have a massive hangover. The next morning I did have a lot of guilt though. And that happened quite a lot throughout any period that I've drank for where I always felt guilty the next day. I shouldn't be doing this. I don't need alcohol. But then I'd find myself the next social event, not wanting to drink and saying, right, I'm not going to drink. But then I couldn't talk to anyone. So all my confidence became wrapped up in alcohol. You know, without it, I can't talk to anyone. But with it, I can be this character that I've always wanted to be. And that would then go into dating girls, sleeping with girls. I can't do any of it unless I've had a drink. So quite early on, there were some sort of behaviours around alcohol that I had that a lot of my friends didn't have. You know, they probably drank heavier than me at the time, but they didn't have this attachment and guilt that I had to it. And anyway, fast forward, I, you know, I started to drink probably like everyone else did and it didn't come 
at a huge cost, I didn't think at, at first. But I'd probably say when I was about 23, 24, I started drinking for slightly different reasons. It wasn't just for a good time and a bit of confidence. It was then to suppress emotions. So if I was injured, if I was out of the team, if I was unhappy, I needed to have a drink. That's what it felt like. I felt, right, that will, like you said about being a pressure cooker, that will calm me down, that will switch me off. You know, if I've not played on a Saturday or if we've lost, right, I need to go out and just clear my head and forget it. So that gave me that outlet that I didn't have in, in any, any kind of other area in my life. I didn't have much balance anywhere. And then I'd say when it got to my later 20s and you said about, you know, that point where it hits you a bit more and you, you said about, um, you know, your girlfriend dying in a car crash, you didn't just turn into something then, it, but it, it probably escalated it a little more. Mine was when I was 28 and, you know, this heart operation that I've just had, but that's when I I had to retire from football pretty much overnight. And that's when it really did escalate for me because I'd always had to keep myself in shape and get off for training and, you know, had that professionalism about me. But when that was taken away and I was left with so much uncertainty, fear, worry about the future, worry about money, where I'm going to live, I was becoming a dad. I I felt I had nowhere to turn other than the comfort of alcohol. And instead of sitting with that discomfort of actually processing them feelings, I just drank them away. And I can even remember the first night after I retired from football, having the beers in the fridge and thinking, oh God, this makes it a bit easier, having a couple of beers. But then instead of having a couple of beers, it then turned into four or five, six or seven, much more frequent. I'd start hiding them because I didn't want my wife and my mum judging me for how much I was drinking. Then I would go out um, socially and I'd become that liability and just that pain in the bum. And I, it just took me away from being the person I wanted to be. And I didn't recognise myself. I, my health went. Um, I didn't care about anything anymore. And yeah, I was on that sort of spiral. I'd started, I knew that I wanted to stop drinking. Every time that I went out the next morning, I'd wake up and go, right, that's the last time. I'm never drinking again. And then quickly I could go a week, two weeks, three weeks. It would then start calling me back in. I'd start thinking about that next drink. And once I had one at that point, I didn't know where it was going to end. You know, when I was younger, I could have two or three maybe and go home. When I got to this point, if I had one drink, I didn't know what was going to happen the rest of that day because I got a taste for it and I drank quickly. And yeah, I didn't know when to stop. That off button had gone. And I recognized it and I wanted, I knew that I needed a bit of help. I started Googling things like what is an alcoholic or how, how am I drinking too much? How many units is this? And just, you know, when you are Googling them kind of things, it probably tells you that you want something to change. I got help through sport and chance. I didn't go to rehab, but I started talking about alcohol. I stopped drinking for about six weeks. And then I thought, right, I've got it sussed now. I'm only going to have a two drink rule. So I said, right, I'll moderate. I don't want to go sober completely because I'll have no confidence. I won't be able to have fun. I'll feel boring, all that kind of stuff that I had when I was 16, 17. And so I said, right, I'll have a two drink limit. And I kept that up for a little while. You go two drinks, you know, I'm going to have no shots. I'm not going to drink at home. I'm only going to drink red wine. I'm not going to drink this. And you start making all these rules up. You start thinking about alcohol, you know, more than you're actually drinking it at times. So I was driving myself mad. And I had one day where it wasn't anything 
even too bad, but I just went out, had too many, to, too much to drink, upset my wife, got home late, lost my phone, all the usual stuff. And uh, I talk about it a lot and I've obviously spoken to you about it a lot, but the next day was when I listened to your podcast. I was hungover, I was disappointed in myself. I'd said I weren't going to drink and I went and got drunk and I listened to you share your story and it's the first time I felt like I wasn't on my own. It's the first time I felt, blimey, someone else actually understands exactly how I'm feeling here. You know, the way you talked about your upbringing, extreme behaviours, the trauma that you'd had and the comfort that alcohol did bring you at certain points. It was as if you were telling my story and this is what a lot of people that have been through recovery listen to and talk about so well is that's what helps another person you know get sober is feeling like you're less alone not being judged I felt safe to you know to come and talk to you afterwards and I then felt like right I need to actually deal with the underlying issues here of why I've been turning to alcohol and yeah I listened to your podcast I started the first bit was was difficult because I just stopped drinking without dealing with those issues so I then started just eating loads of chocolate, exercising loads, trying to work, trying to do anything I could to keep myself busy. But it wasn't until just after that, that I actually started to process things and talk to people properly. And then about a year later, you know, I, I began a 12 step program. So I've got a decent perspective on that because a lot of people go into these programs or recovery groups and they're still drinking heavily and they want to stop. And it's like the first day. Mine was a year, so I was a bit confused going into it. But I'd say that program there has given me so much. Um, and it's only the only the first steps actually about the alcohol. A lot of the others is just a framework for how to deal with certain things in your life. And I'd say probably in the last few months, especially, you know, I've not had a, a thought about touching alcohol, but that framework I've used every single day to help me with, with all the issues that I'm currently having. And uh, I'll, I'll be forever grateful to that and to, so many amazing people that I've met, you know, since I've stopped drinking, my life's completely changed. And I know a lot of people say that, but I'm now two, I mean, two and a half years at Christmas. And yeah, it's, there's been some really difficult challenges in that, but it's the, the best two and a half years I've ever had. And one thing on that podcast that I heard you talk about early on was one of the best things about not drinking is you get your feelings back. And one of the worst things is you get your feelings back. So it's like you actually, you know, you can't just drink them away. You can't block them out. Some of them are difficult to deal with. But also the the beautiful feelings and the amazing moments are heightened even more. So I always remember that part and obviously the part that you played. But yeah, that's uh, that's my story to, to where we've got to now. Amazing. And there's so much, there's so much you said that, I, you know, I was scribbling little things down. I, I think for anybody listening right now what i would encourage everyone to do and you know there are some people who will be drinking healthily or have have no addiction issues at all and that's great this is a great podcast just to kind of uh, educate yourself as much as anything on it and there might be people listening going maybe i have a problem with something but what i would encourage you to do whatever wherever you are is listen for similarities not differences you know listen listen especially around the feelings you know that that, that both Fraser and I have given you a bit of insight into our stories, but but listen to that because I think that's what you'll really connect to. And what what I've done, uh, Fraser, is I've got some questions for us to 
to challenge us a little bit and, and dig into things and hopefully gives listeners and viewers a little bit um, more insight into exactly what's been going on for us and, and how it sits with us right now. And the first one I wrote down is, is how do you know if you're an addict? And I think that's a great question. I would say that I bloody wrote it, but you know what I mean? Um, I think it's a really interesting one that a lot of people kind of think, oh, well, how do I know if I've got a problem? I, I'll kick it off because I, I want to share this story or this this thing that happened to me, which was just such a illustration of, of being an addict. In the final 10 days before I went into rehab, I, I was completely and utterly breaking down. I basically was drinking 24-7. If I wasn't asleep, I was trying to drink. And I was completely out of control. And I, during that 10 days, got myself down to London from Manchester. And um, I won't take people through the details. But I remember being in a cab, going from an event to a swanky bar that I thought, you know, my ego would fit in. And I was just I was just a drunk. And I remember sitting in the front seat of the, ta- of the taxi and everybody else sat in the back. Oh, everyone looking forward to this. You know, this was going to be my eighth night of keeping going. And I was crying my eyes out in the front seat, crying my eyes out. And the reason I was crying my eyes out was because I was saying to myself, it's going to fucking happen again. I'm doing this again. And it was like I had no power over stopping it at all. And I know there might be people listening and go, well, that's a bit of a cop out, isn't it? You could have stopped it. You could have stopped going on, you know, for that another night. You could have gone home early. I couldn't. I'm I'm saying it from the bottom of my heart. It was like the process was underway in in exactly the same way that Fraser said. I had one or two beers and all bets were off. It was the same. It was like I, I once an ex-girlfriend once said to me, Oh, you just the thing is you just need to control it a bit better. And I was like in my head, I was like, that's the problem. I can't control it. I can't. And that me sat in the cab crying my eyes out was just that. And do you know what? I went and did it and I drank all night and I had a couple of hours sleep and I got up the next day and I started drinking again. And I was going, you know, and even though within me, there was this little boy crying his eyes out going, please stop now. Couldn't do it. How to know if you're an addict is around that powerlessness, that that inevitability. Is it, and, and dig into that, you know, look at that within yourself. Is it that it's going to happen? And, it, and it, any slight door that opens it means it's off and it's on, it's gone. You don't know where it's going to end up, whether this is around alcohol, drugs, food, sex, shopping, it's that powerlessness that I think really is the key. Does that does that make sense to you, Fraze? Mm. Yeah, it does a lot. And I, I get a lot of uh, resonance with that. I always say to people as well, it is something when you've come out and spoken about this, a lot of people tend to want to talk to you about it. And you can often tell the people that are asking certain questions that are asking for themselves. And you never want to judge them. Or, and I never do. And I never say, you're this or you're that or you need help. I've made mistakes previously trying to get people sober and there's that case of denial that is that I that I was that I would have done before as well. You know, I'm sure people said to you, 
you know, I think you're drinking a bit too much or, you know, maybe you should stop. You're like, I haven't got a problem. If I wanted to stop tomorrow, I could stop tomorrow. And a lot of people have got that. A lot of people have got the denial of, you know, there was someone that I was trying to stop drinking. I'm not an alcoholic, you know, I can go weeks without drinking. I don't drink in the mornings. Yeah, well, I've sometimes it goes too far, but it doesn't happen with everyone. Like they, they have that sort of denial and excuse. You know, if I was an alcoholic, I wouldn't be able to hold down a job or pay a mortgage. So I can't be that. That's the guy that's on the park bench, you know, swigging a bottle of vodka. That was my perception of an alcoholic and around that word when I was younger or even, you know, when I was a young adult, we might come on to that bit in a minute. But I always say to people when I'm doing a presentation or talking to them, especially around alcohol, like, is alcohol giving you more than it's taking away? Or is it taking away much more than it's giving you? I think that's a decent gauge of having a a healthier relationship with alcohol. My mum, for an example, is it giving her more than she's taking away? She can go out, she can have a glass of wine with her food and that be it. So actually it's giving her a nice little something that she likes at, at dinner, can be you know sociable, whatever it might be. She can put it down, she can go to bed, she's not hung over the next day. It's not really taking anything away from her. For me, it gave me confidence and a good time and all that kind of stuff, but it also took away everything. It stripped me of everything. The next day, the the shame, the guilt, the way I felt about myself, the way that I didn't want to do it, the mistakes I'd made, the things that I'd worry about, the money that I'd spent. I can't, I have to, I have to think back to those times where, you know, just how bad it was on mornings when you go, oh my God, what did I say last night? Oh my God, what's everyone going to be thinking of me here? How much did I spend there? I can't remember doing that. Like waking up with that feeling for two and a half years, knowing that exactly what you've done the night before is is an incredible feeling for me. But I always come back to that bit, you know, is it taking away more than it's giving? And then I've heard people describe addiction, you know, using different phrases. But as you said there about being powerless, it's that that point of, I know that I don't want to do this, but then you still continue to go back, whether it's every single day or whether it's like, right, I'm having a week off or two weeks off, but then you you pretty much pick up where you left off. And I don't think I've just had that around alcohol either. I've probably had that with shopping. I've probably, you know, I could go months without buying an item of clothing. I'll buy one and then for the next week I might go on a, a splurge and it's the same as almost binge drinking and going weeks without the same with chocolate you know I could go on a really strict probably too extreme diet not touch chocolate for months you know my daughter's got a little uh, chocolate cupboard that I wouldn't even look in but then I might have one little bit of chocolate that day and I'm like right that's opened it up uh, for this day only I'm just going to eat as much chocolate as possible and then tomorrow I'll punish myself at the gym or whatever it might be and feel that guilt. And even like I was hiding my alcohol consumption, like didn't want people seeing how much I ate. I've done that with food previously as well. I'll eat chocolate in the car and hide the wrapper so no one sees it or I'll do it. And I'm like, why am I doing this? And it's because I don't really want to be doing it, but there's like an impulse to do it. That's not gone any, any kind of extreme way like alcohol did. But I start to see those similar patterns of, a lot of the time it's like, why Why do I feel like I need to do that? And there's probably something I'm trying to run away from a little bit underneath it. So starting to address that part is much more helpful now as well. The, the interesting thing is 
I did start to have a morning drink right towards the end. And, and uh, the mad part of it is it made perfect sense to me. It made perfect sense to me. I remember the morning waking up thinking, if I just have a couple of vodka Red Bulls, I'm going to feel much better. And I did have a couple of vodka Red Bulls and I felt much better. It made much perfect sense to me. But was that the point of my problem? No, the problem was miles before that. The problem had been on show for a long time. And so when we were, I want us to get to this point, is that kind of where that problem mark is? Where am I an addict? I I was an addict way beyond, way before I picked up a morning drink. And and that's the key. I often think of it like this with, you know, whatever addiction is. And obviously Fraser and I are going to refer to alcohol a lot because that was our primary issue. Um, But this could be anything. Just substitute it in for whatever you want. But for instance, if the first time I had a drink, I'd ended up in hospital I'd, I'd broken up my relationship. Everyone hated me. I'd crashed my car. I got arrested. I'd never drink again. You'd never do it, would you? You'd be like, bloody hell, what is this thing? I'm not going anywhere near it. It doesn't happen like that, though, does it? It's your friend. It's for Fraser and I, you know, slight, socially slightly awkward. We'd found ourselves, you know, it was our friend. It was working for us. And it it wasn't that it was, you know, the odd little problem here or there wasn't that bad. It was all part of the fun of the fair. It's just it slowly creeps in on you. So you don't, you know, one of my questions is, why don't we reach out for help earlier? And, you you, you know, you talked a little bit around denial and I want to go into that a bit more, but partly because it doesn't happen quickly. It happens slowly. And in that slow process, it's your friend. And so how do you desert your friend you actually have to let go of who that person is. This is a huge part of addiction recovery. It's going, that person I am in addiction is not who I want to be anymore. I want to be somebody different. And to do that, you have to give up a lot of years of the way you operate in life. And it's liberating, but it's difficult. And often people who can't overcome addiction issues, they don't want to let go of that person they keep will tell you, no, but that person's all right. You know, they're okay. Just just gone a little bit wayward rather than going, I have to change everything. So why don't we reach out for help earlier? Because of all of that, you know, all of that melting pot of things and and then add in there a bit of denial of minimizing problems, minimizing the impact of an argument or a, a loose couple of words or being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people you know, minimizing everything, it all adds on layer upon layer upon layer means that eventually you've got someone who needs to fall apart before they'll accept that they've got mm-hmm. a real problem. I think that part there is important to talk about, Luke, as well. With um, I've seen a lot of people that really demonize alcohol and go, look at this awful substance. And it's like, you have to also accept and remember that it did work for you at one point. And it worked for me at one point and it was like a friend and it was that comfort. And it works well for people. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I spoke about this with someone. He gave me like, you know, when someone just gives you like a really visual representation, it just made sense to me. It was like when I was that 16 year old kid at a party, alcohol was literally, if you put it in a human form, it was like someone coming, going, you know, come over here, put your arm around me. Look, <laughs> you can go and do this. You can go and be whoever you want to be go out there, get the girl, go and dance. Don't worry about it. I've got this. And that's exactly what it felt like for me when I, when I had a drink. And then the other extreme, when I, when I retired and, you know, I was completely lost of my identity and I was in that depressive state. 
that was the thing that was like, right, come here. This will make you feel better. It will give you a bit of comfort. It will stop you from worrying about the future. It will stop you doing this. And it was, it was like, um, it was like someone coming and putting their arm around you with that comfort and thinking, you know what, this actually works. This is making me feel much better. But that's how it lures you in. And that's how, you know, I would have been in denial then because I'd been like, what are you on about? Like, I can go days and weeks without drinking. It's fine. Like, it just makes me feel a bit better for the time being. And that's where addiction creeps in. Because as you said, if it happened the first time you ever drank, you probably wouldn't go back again because you're like, this thing's never working. Why am I going to keep keep doing it? If alcohol yeah. gave me no confidence when I started drinking, I'd be like, well, this is rubbish. It's, it's just not doing anything for me. But it did. It, it worked for me. And that's that's the difficult part. And where you say about letting go of that, I think a lot of people, and myself included in this, I looked at a life without alcohol. It's going to be boring. You know, think of all those good times I've had, parties and weddings and holidays and nights out and stuff like that. I can't let all that go. But when you get to a certain point, you have to realize those aren't coming back. The, you know, those glory days aren't coming back, not without major consequences. And I see a lot of, you know, we're talking about men here on this podcast a lot. I see a lot of older men now in their 50s and 60s, and they're still trying to get those glory days back, but they don't come back without a consequence. You know, for some people they do. For some people they can, you know, they can still go out and have a few drinks at a party and then, you know, have that decent relationship with alcohol. But that euphoric recall of going, look at all those amazing times it gave me. How can I give all that up? But it's realizing and letting go and knowing that they probably aren't coming back and they're not coming back without, you know, major consequences in return. Mm. I'll never forget, I'm not going to mention his name, but he was a, an old teammate of mine and a, a sort of, I guess, a drinking buddy of mine. And he, he drank a lot, but didn't, doesn't, you know, doesn't have problems with alcohol. And the biggest difference between him and I, he used to ring me up in the morning after a night out and go what a night that was that was brilliant and i would be crippled in the corner going fuck no it wasn't i don't know what happened it was you know and and just dread and crippled with anxiety and it, it just consumed me and it was the difference between someone who's got a problem and someone who hasn't and i, I know that will sound might sound strange to people because you'll think it's about quantity it's how much you drunk is the problem. Yeah. It's not actually, it's about the effect. You know, I was I was in rehab with a housewife who didn't start drinking until she was 40. She'd just have a glass of wine and she was putting the kids to bed and it just escalated to a place where she was hiding it around the house and had wine bottles in all sorts of cupboards and then was changing the, the, the time on the clock to get the kids to bed earlier so she could drink a bit more. But her volume was was relatively low in comparison to me but the effect was the same. It was exactly the same. Mm. And, and that, that's the difference between problem or not problem. Fraser, I want to ask you this. We haven't talked about this at all, so I'm fascinated to know what you're going to say. What, what do you think is the most common characteristic of an addict? Good and bad here. And this isn't like a pick holes at an addict, but mm. what do you think are the, the most common characteristics? Oh, it's a really difficult one because this alcoholism especially does not discriminate. So I have seen 
and I've met hundreds and thousands and now thousands of people who have been addicted to alcohol. I've seen homeless people. I've seen multimillionaires. I've seen famous people. I've seen mums, dads, nans, granddads, people that started drinking at 10 years old, people that started drinking at 40 years old. It just does not discriminate. So it's hard for me to say, yeah, it's a really different, (laughs) because I've seen so many different cases of it. It's really difficult, but but there are some really similar traits because Mm. when you do say, you know, look for the similarities and not the differences, I've gone to meetings and listened to people talk and I've I've listened to a 30-year-old man get up there and I've listened to a 70-year-old lady get up there and I can come away from listening to a 70-year-old lady and go, blimey, that was a bit like me. Blimey, I did that or I felt like that. There are so many similar issues that were going on in in their everyday life problems that they were avoiding I see a lot of young men that start drinking because they can't talk to girls and lack of confidence I see a lot of people that weren't given the love and attention that they needed when they were kids so I feel like when someone does drink and they drink slightly differently and end up becoming an addict possibly there are lots of elements that go on in that childhood there are lots of elements around that comfort, that alcohol or whatever it is might give them that's lacking in their everyday life. And then I think as we grow older, it's running away from problems. It's I've got no one I can talk to about this. I don't know how to process this emotion. And I think that's a real common trait of addicts is they try and avoid rather than actually sitting with and dealing with an issue. But yeah, I'd be fascinated to know what you you think on this as well, Luke. The first thing I'd say is that like you have met thousands of addicts and um, in various different places within their their journey on it, some in long-term recovery, some not, um, some really struggling. I often think addicts are quite gifted people. I know that's going to sound really, you know, here, here are two addicts and I'm saying we're really gifted. No, I don't mean <laughs> it like that. But I, I, haven't, I haven't met an addict who hasn't got something about them that, you know, is they're really gifted at, you know, and they have that mm. kind of really, really sort of live brain. That's a terrible kind of uh, description, but but essentially they, they have a gift somewhere, uh, another within them. But I, I think the two things that I often see, and I, and this is a massive self-reflection, by the way, control is a big thing. I, I realized that in addiction, I was obsessed by control, a control of everything. Because because I had no faith in life and I had no, I just had this big ego, low self-esteem. So a big front, but underneath, very nervous. And and my answer to that was control, control of every outcome, control of what people thought of me. And I see that a lot in addicts because that's the pressure cooker building up, building up. I need control. I need to control. I don't, life is difficult. It's, you know, frustrating and uh, so therefore when disappointments come they feel like huge disappointments because I wasn't able to control that outcome and then that pressure cooker bursts I I think there's definitely something around control I I also think there's something of not being at ease with life not being in you know that flow of life of constantly searching you know so for me I always just remember this feeling of like everything's going to be okay just around this corner or just over the hill. 
everything's going to be better. Just I think we talked about this on a previous podcast, you know, like when I earn this amount of money or <laughs> when I get that. I think that's really common in addicts. They can't sit in the present and 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 be able to just go with the flow. And uh, and maybe when I'm saying that, I'm, I'm talking about addicts who haven't got some recovery behind them because, you know, Fraser and I are very much at ease in life nowadays, but I definitely wasn't like that previously. I was always searching for the next thing, the ne- you know, whatever, essentially something to rid me of my pain. And what was my pain about? My pain was about life. I just wasn't at ease with it because I didn't know who I was and I, I didn't know where I sat within it. So I think those two things for me, control and that constant searching. And that's what it is. It's disease is dis-ease. You know, when you're mm. when you aren't at ease and you're you're grasping and trying to think, right, what can fix this? Is it food, alcohol, shopping, gambling, sex, social media, work, you know, and and and, and it's that uncomfortableness of the present moment, you know, I'm not at ease, I need something to help me get through this situation. And you put it brilliantly there. That is that is being uneasy. That's dis-ease. That's a disease. And it's taken, it's taken, it still takes me a long time to, to get to that point. I don't think, you know, I'm someone that's always at ease. I think, you know, you've got so much more sobriety under your belt than I have and experiences. And I'm still, you know, I can still find myself getting drawn towards that right when this happens right then then that will happen when this happens then everything will be fine and you're still trying to move towards that and you're still a little bit uncomfortable with the present moment but what I think I've now got are a set of tools and a set of people that I didn't have before I've got people that I can reach out to and go feel a bit uncomfortable about this what, what do you think and often those people are people that have gone through similar experiences to you and I or it's you <laughs> I'll just pick up the phone to you. Um, but I've now managed to, I didn't have, you know, at 16 years old, I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it anyway, but I didn't have people I could call up and say, God, I feel so terrified about talking to a girl or even at 21. Oh my God, I feel like I'm the worst person in the world because I've had a bad game of football and I've let my mum down and, you know, I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to pay the bills at the end of the month and this and that. And instead of, getting that out, I pushed it down with alcohol. And now I feel like I've got a a really healthy way to get it out there. I instantly feel better even without listening to that person respond. I've just got people that go, yeah, that's okay. They don't judge me for it. It feels safe. And I come back to it again. That's probably been the biggest part of my recovery is having those people that I can do that with. And that's, again, one of the one of the biggest reasons that we've started this podcast is you know maybe we can spark these conversations or have them for other people but hopefully they can then start to you know have these kind of conversations in their own life as well right here's the question fraser are we alcoholics we we fraser and i've talked about this privately so it's um it's not brand new to us but i it's um I, I think this is a really interesting question because when, when I came out of rehab and I, you know, I didn't want to drink again in the rest of my life. I didn't want to be that person I was before. Lots of people said to me, yeah, but you're not an alcoholic. You're not an alcoholic. And and I even in my head at times were going, well, am I an alcoholic? I, I don't know. Am I? And over the years, I've, you know, my path has been in Alcoholics Anonymous and you know, when we introduce ourselves, we introduce ourselves as, as hi, I'm Luke, I'm an alcoholic. And so I've, I've had a long time to, to kind of think through 
that phrase or that word. And I think it's helpful and I think it's unhelpful. It's helpful for people at the start to label it and to identify with it. And in a meeting to be able to go, that's where I'm at. It's kind of grounding. You know, this is where I'm at. I need to I need to look after myself. I need to get help. And I think in those in that instance, it's it's super, super important. But I've used I've seen that word used outside in in the world unhelpfully you know well I'm not that bad I'm not an alcoholic or he or she's not that bad they're not an alcoholic or that person's a bloody alcoholic you know it's a it's a labeled in a way which is based on an individual's perception of what that is is it the park bench drunk It, it what is it and just like I said earlier I had a problem before I started taking a morning drink but I guess that the morning drink is where most people would say Luke's an alcoholic. But the problem was way before. So was that label helpful to me? Because it essentially delayed me asking for help until it reaches a point where in an individual's perception, my perception maybe, I've now reached this place where, okay, it's bad enough. But prior to that, I've absolutely smashed my life to pieces. And so I get lots of people who who inquire with me about they might have a problem with alcohol and they'll, you know, they'll bring this up. Well, am I an alcoholic or not? And I kind of go, do you know what? I just think park that for now. Is, is it just going back to what Fraser said earlier? Is it taking more from your life than it's giving to you in that voice inside of you? Is it telling you that this is working or not? And if it's not, that's enough. You don't need to call it. You don't need to call it anything necessarily. And I wonder whether we'd get a lot more people into recovery if we didn't use that label so strongly. But I'm willing to be shot down for this. And I know there will be people listening and and possibly even from the recovery world who won't agree with me at all on this. And I understand that. But but I want to kind of voice my opinion on it. What do you think, Fraser? I, I feel like I'm in a very similar situation to you, Luke. I'm... I'm someone that when I, as I said, I had that year, the first year of my sobriety, I was nothing to do with, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous or any kind of support group. I called myself a grey area drinker. And that's a phrase that I've seen used a lot on social media where most of those people that call themselves a grey area drinker, you know, have a, a pretty serious issue with alcohol, I would say. But it's maybe a softer way of saying I'm an alcoholic or you know, there's a real serious problem. An alcoholic isn't, you know, it's a, it's a concept. It's not like, there's not like a test you can go where you're like, well, 100% he's an alcoholic. There's not like a, you know, if someone's pregnant, it's like, right, you're pregnant. There's not like a definite, <laughs> you're an alcoholic. Um, you do a so weight test. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think, as you said there, a lot of people will say, oh, the morning drink or the shakes or whatever it might be. I didn't, I never had a morning drink. I never had the shakes, but I'm, I go into a meeting. I'm more than comfortable calling myself an alcoholic and introducing myself. Would that have helped me early on if someone had, I'm not too sure. I, I, I really understand how, especially in the, in the Alcoholics Anonymous community, how it's really, really helpful for a lot of people where there's absolutely zero denial. My hands are up in the air. I've got a, I've got a problem here, but I do completely get where you're coming from. Where I think we've got 
way more people in that middle ground that maybe it doesn't help and maybe if it wasn't this one word and this one image that we've all got in our heads of what an alcoholic is you know people say you have to hit rock bottom you know and again I go in and and talk to a lot of businesses and teams about this it's like I see far too many people in meetings that say that, that constantly tell me how fortunate that I am that I stopped drinking when I did because they it took them losing every relationship they've ever had, every penny they've had, homes, kids, everything. And then they go, right, I better make a change now where I feel like I was going down that slope and put a stop to it before my life fell off a cliff entirely. So I don't feel like you do, you know, you've reached your own version of a rock bottom. Mine happened to be that day where I drank too much, but I didn't want to lose every single aspect and then go, right, now I'm an alcoholic because I know that I would have been drinking in the morning just years down the line, but I managed to to put a stop to it. But I also don't think you can ever call anyone else an alcoholic. I'd never say, I think you're an alcoholic to somebody. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's ever going to be helpful. And also... Even when people are in meetings and stuff, I don't think it's helpful for them to label everyone else. There was one meeting in particular that I was in and someone said, well, us Alkies. And I was like, oh, I'm a little bit uncomfortable. You put me under that umbrella with, you know, I, I don't know, just something just made me feel real, you know, uncomfortable. Us Alkies. And I was like, I hate the word Alki as it is. I'm happy labeling myself and introducing myself here, but I don't really want you calling me an Alkie. But maybe that was my pride and ego as well, so I'm not too sure. But I, it's something, it's something that I thought about, and I, I think I heard Spencer Matthews talk about this. Yeah, and, yeah, and, it's, and what what mm. what what I also think is fine is for you to, you know, flip back and forth. You don't have to put your flag Absolutely. in the ground and go right. I'm never. I've said this now. I can never go back because I've heard Spencer Matthews go. He's, I've heard himself call himself an alcoholic, for one. I think he went to meetings and then didn't think they, you know, AA was for him and that's fine. And he took a different path. But then I've also heard him say, I think al- the word alcoholics are disgusting label. Why should you, why should you? And, and he's sort of gone, he's probably said that first and then changed his mind and then you can go in between. I think a lot of people. So I'm sorry to jump in. I just, on that Spencer Matthews thing, because I think that's such a good point. He has changed his way mm. of dis- describing on it. But he hasn't changed that he doesn't want to drink. And he hasn't mm. changed the positive impact that it's had on his life not to drink. And it's yeah. like, uh, and I think that's the key, you know, and, and it's exactly what you're saying. But the one thing that hasn't changed in him is, is going, I don't want to drink again in the rest of my life because it makes me a version of myself that mm. I don't want to be. Whether you want to call, whether I want to call myself an alcoholic or not, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, sorry, mate. I just wanted to say that. And, and no, no, no. And there's no one way either. Like for some people, it's, uh, it's rehab. For some people, it's a recovery group. For some people, it's something completely different. There isn't one way. And I don't think, you know, I think, yes, there's a lot around the word, but I also think it's just, it's every individual case. But I do, yeah, like you say, even, even me opening my mouth and talking about it here. I flip back and forth and I think that's okay. I think for some people it really works in the rooms, but I also think for people outside of that, I think, yeah, I can see where it could be a detriment for sure. And I think times are changing a little bit. You know, I think um, my eldest two 
and some relatives who are kind of in their late teens, early 20s. I do think the culture is changing to some extent around drinking. But I think a lot of it previously has stemmed from the fact that it, essentially it's been socially unacceptable <laughs> to not drink. So if we live in a society where it's socially unacceptable, it's like, well, why? Mm-hmm. Why don't you drink? This is, a, you know, this is not acceptable. And the answer has to be because I'm an alcoholic. And then they go, oh, OK, no problem. Whereas, you know, it's that grey area that you're talking about. And I think there are, you know, a lot, lot more freedom now for someone to say they might not necessarily have an extremely bad problem with alcohol, but they've made a life choice, which is really healthy for them. And, you know, in that conversation of, you know, why don't you drink? It was because I don't want to or I don't, you know, it doesn't doesn't work for me. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to be an mm. alcoholic. It doesn't that shouldn't be the benchmark. And I think that's happening more, but it's still going to be that kind of labeling problem. Mm. I think it's really important for us to 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 talk about what does somebody do if they think they need help? You know, we're, we're talking about addiction. There might be people listening to this going, yeah, that's me. You know, that that is me and I need help. What does that person do? And I, I, I just, before I throw to you, Fraser, to ask you what you, what you would advise someone, the, the first thing I'd say is asking for help is huge. It's, it's an acknowledgement that there is something you need to sort out. You need to, you need help with. It's a humbling experience. People trapped in addiction, and I'm talking about myself, often have huge egos that are getting in their way. No, 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 I've got this. No, 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 I've got this. I know it's a problem, but I've got this. And it stops them getting help. Whereas that moment where someone goes, I need help, is crucial. It's a crucial, humbling experience, and it's a massive step forward. Where where would you say their next port of call is from there, Fraser? Yeah, I, well, I would say what you just said there was my own experience is there was like a, there was a little internal voice that I had. And I think we've all got that little voice that's almost whispering. It's like, you don't have to do this anymore. You know, this isn't you. I, th- I feel like there is an issue. But then the louder voice sometimes of the ego is like, no, no, this is fine. But I, I feel like that's the first port of call is is asking for help. And as I said, whether that's a close friend, a family member, a support group, a therapist, whatever it might be, that's that drop of the guard where it goes, there is a, there's an issue. There might be an issue here. You know, you're not even saying that like, I've definitely got an issue, but you might be thinking, I think I might have some kind of issue. You might be in doubt about it. Mm. You explore, exploring that just drops that guard and goes, I feel like I might have an issue here. And from there, you can completely transform your life. Yeah, look, I, I, what I would say to people is that the if you get to that place that, you know, you're like, I need help, look for support groups, mm. look for whatever that might be. That that could be an Alcoholics Anonymous. It, it could be. And we're, again, we're talking about alcohol, but there's lots of other, you know, that's just our. But there are other support groups as well. But look for support groups, because the one thing that I can absolutely categorically tell you is if you need help, you can't do it on your own. You can't outthink poorly thinking, someone said to me once. If your poorly thinking has got you into this trouble, you're not going to outthink that on your own. You're going to need other people to unload what's going on for you inside them to give you guidance and advice and steer you through exactly what Fraser was talking about. You can't do that all on your own. So if you get to that place where like, I need help, then you need to reach out and search for support groups. There's lots out there. Just Google it. Whatever your addiction is, 
alcohol support groups and you'll get a ton of them. Call one of them, speak to them, investigate, go to more than one of them, find what's right for you. But no, you're not going to outthink your poorly thinking. It's Mm. super important. We're going to be coming to an end soon, unfortunately, Fraser. Just this last last minute or so, I just kind of want us to try and wrap a sentence or two each into life now versus life in addiction. I, I think for me, the, the biggest thing was that when I moved into recovery from addiction, I worried that all my good stuff wouldn't come with me. You know, that that like determination and competitiveness and hard work and uh, wouldn't come with me. And it does come with you. But on the other side in recovery is ease in life. That's what I feel now. I don't have a great expectation of of what life is going to throw at me. Life is going to do its thing. And I'm okay with that. I'm going to move with the flow. I'm going to be the best I can be. I don't need to control everything. And, And I'm going to be present in every minute I can be and enjoy life. That's it. The old Luke was the absolute opposite of that. And like I've talked about before, I had disease, as Fraser said, and now I feel at ease in life. And that's that's good enough for me. What about for you, Fraser? And again, Luke, quite similar is um uncertainty is probably the main reason that I drank before, and a pure fear and dread of not knowing exactly what was going to happen in the next day, the next week, the next month, the next five years. I wanted, I wanted comfort, security. I wanted to know everything. And now I'm much more comfortable with uncertainty. In fact, it actually excites me a lot of the time. I think, you know, if you'd have told me a few years back, I'm out of football now. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing in three or four years time, where I'm going to be living, what I'm going to be doing for a job, anything. That would have absolutely crippled me enough to go, oh, can't deal with that. I need a drink. Now... I'm like, wow, look at the opportunities. I could be, I could be doing this, could be doing that. I have no idea. And I, I have faith that things are going to be, going to be okay because someone messaged me the other day and I've, I've gone through a difficult, <laughs> a difficult last six weeks. And he messaged me, someone from a recovery group said, um, just remember that you've got through a hundred percent of the bad times that you faced in your life. And I was like, yeah, yeah true. So you, you said you've got a hundred percent record of getting through those times. And I was like, yeah, and we all do. But the worry and the un- of the uncertainty used to cripple me, but now it does, yeah, it really excites me. And there's just that faith and that, you know, that ease that you talk about. I've, I've definitely, you know, started to feel that in the last couple of years. And hopefully 10 years on when I'm in your position, I'll feel it even more. So <laughs> yeah, it, that, that's been the biggest difference. You and are. I think also I filtered out, who are drinking buddies and who are genuine friends. And I now feel like I've got a real good group of genuine friends around me that I didn't think I'd have previously. I worried that they would probably fall away and I'd be lonely with no confidence, but I've had more, I've got more friends than I've ever had and more confidence than I've ever had. So that's all come in sobriety. On the confidence factor, when I was drinking, I'd ha- I'd have to get myself smashed in order to dance, and now I'm bloody sober. I can't stop dancing, and I'm embarrassing my kids left, right, and centre. Anyway, I won't go into that.
Fraser, thank you. We're going to have to wrap it up, uh, unfortunately. I hope people got something from that. And like I said at the start, you know, look for the similarities, not the differences. And if something has really connected with you and you feel like there's a problem, please reach out to us. You can reach out to us on the Understanding Men pod uh, social media or to us individually. And we'll, we'll, we'll definitely listen and guide you as best we can. So thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can find us on all social media platforms, including Spotify, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. And as always, we'll be promoting every episode via our own personal social media. So like I said earlier, please come and find us. Give us your opinions on this episode, on what else you want to talk about. Please find us. We'll be very, very happy to receive that. We want this podcast to be as interactive as possible, and that's a huge part of it. Also, if you like what you've heard, then please go ahead and hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. And lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review. Obviously, a five star would be very welcome and it will help others find us. So thank you and goodbye for now.